0: the sixth episode of To My Daughter. In the previous episode, episode 5, I talked about how it was to move from Dublin to Singapore and my experience during the first few weeks of settling into my new life in Singapore. In this episode, I'll talk about the role and some of the experiences I had while supporting the Vietnamese market. When I first started working for Google, I supported SMB clients, and SMB stands for small and medium businesses. But when I moved to Singapore, I joined what Google calls the LCS team, which stands for large customer sales. So while the SMB customers could be anything from a medium-sized company with a few employees to a really small company run by a single person, like a small local flower shop for instance, the LCS customers would be large international companies. So companies like Samsung, Coca-Cola, Nokia, Unilever, which is the company behind brands such as Sunsilk, Lipton, Vaseline, etc. And then there's Procter & Gamble, who's behind brands like Pampers, Gillette, Pringles, Head & Shoulders, etc. So if you studied marketing, then I'm sure you already knew about this. But if you didn't, then it may come as a surprise to you that most of the biggest brands you see in the stores are owned by two to three companies. So you may dislike Sunsilk shampoo, for instance, and prefer Dove instead. But at the end of the day, your money goes to the same company, namely Unilever, who owns both brands. My initial role in Singapore was an account coordinator. And at the time, the Filipino sales team didn't have a local office in the Philippines yet. So I supported two markets, Vietnam and the Philippines. I would, among other things, help to ensure that YouTube campaigns went live. So I would work with the customer's media agency and the YouTube team to get all necessary assets, meaning like all images or video clips, etc. before a YouTube campaign went live. So if you go to youtube.com and look at the top banner, then often there will be one big brand that dominates the top page. And believe it or not, there's a lot of manpower behind those ads. A few months after working in Singapore, after the Philippines team opened an office in the Philippines, I was promoted to an account manager for the Vietnamese market, which in the external world, meaning outside of Google, would be the equivalent to a key account manager. Uh, Now, I know I have a few listeners who are fairly young, so I will explain what key account management is. So in sales, you'll often see companies split their customer base according to the size of revenue that a customer generates. And often the Pareto Principle is followed. So the Pareto Principle states that for many events, roughly 80% of the effects come from 20% of the causes. So in sales, for instance, 80% of the money of a company earnings would come from 20% of their activities or of their customer base. So the role of managing key accounts is just about supporting a handful of the biggest customers that bring in the biggest bucks. And very simply put, that is what key account management is, managing the key accounts or key clients. I remember so well in the one-to-one meeting I had with my manager when I got promoted and it wasn't the promotion itself that I remember so much, but it was the moment when he informed me about the race in base salary. I went from earning 38,400 Singaporean dollars to, I think it was like 52 something, 52,000 Singaporean dollars. And that was a 35% increase in base salary. However, if you listen to episode five, then you may remember that I went down 34% in base salary when I moved from Dublin to Singapore and I actually went from having 25 vacation days to only having 17 days in Singapore because in Singapore, I think the normal amount of vacation days you get from a company is like 14 days. But then at Google, you would get one extra day for each year you'd work for Google. So close to the end of my stay in Singapore, I had 17 vacation days. Anyway, so when my manager presented me the new base pay, I remember his eyes being so big and he had a huge smile on his face and it was like, this is really good me. And thinking back I can remember that I was a bit unsure if he really meant that or if he only said that to comfort me because the benchmark salary in my head was always what a normal base salary was in Norway, which I know is wrong to compare in the first place because Norway is an expensive place to live and tax is high, so it's not really comparable. But I'd already gone down in base salary when I moved from Norway to Dublin and then I went down even more when moving to Singapore. And then my promotion basically just got me back to the same level I had in Dublin or 1% higher than what I had in Dublin. So just purely looking at base pay, it wasn't something that I was impressed by, but I can tell you one thing. And that's that I never struggled while living in Singapore. Um, And obviously the quarterly bonuses uh, and the benefit of free food, other perks and stuff like that, they are obviously not taken into account here. But yeah, the base pay was nothing to brag about. I actually had a hard time figuring out my role after I'd gotten a promotion, to be honest, because while working in Dublin, my tasks were very operational and very hands-on. I would be in those AdWords account, optimizing and improving campaigns. And as an account coordinator, the role was fairly operational as well. But once I was promoted to be an account manager, the role became a balance between like day-to-day contact with customers and media agencies, but also overall storytelling. So I would share insights with customers about how consumer behavior was shifting and that TV ads were ineffective because once those ads come on, the eyeballs would shift from the TV to the mobile screen. So in 2014, there was a lot of effort put into convincing customers to invest more on mobile ads because these handheld devices was going to take over traffic from the desktop or stationary computers. Now it's a no brainer that you have to be on mobile and that your ads and communication has to be optimized so that it looks good on a mobile screen. But back in 2014, there were a lot of big customers that were quite stubborn. So the job of convincing them to allocate significant amount over to digital and not even mobile, just over to digital instead of TV, that was actually a big task. So when I worked for Google, Google didn't have and still doesn't have an office in Vietnam. Mostly due to safety concerns of the employees, there's really no freedom of speech in Vietnam. So there's a fear that if Google were to have an office in Vietnam and some government official would want Google to remove something, then employees could be in danger if they decided not to take action on this request. So being based out of Singapore, I would fly to Vietnam like every other week or at least twice a month for a couple of days each time. And the very first time traveling to Vietnam alone, I remember my dad was so concerned because he has obviously seen and experienced Vietnam in a different way than I have And afraid that I'd be taken advantage of, he advised me to just not speak Vietnamese with any airport staff. He'd say, just pretend you don't understand Vietnamese. It'll ensure that you won't get into trouble. They won't bother you if you just act like a foreigner. And the first time I traveled, I remember standing by the passport control. And this guy would study my passport and just state the obvious. He'd say... Norwegian passport. I nodded. What are you doing in Vietnam? Business, I'd answer in English. You don't speak Vietnamese. And then I'd shake my head, but your name is Vietnamese. I nodded. And you understand Vietnamese. I nodded. But you don't speak. And then I just shook my head. And then he just took his time and like flipped through my passport as if he was waiting for something and I just naively stood there waiting for him to hand me back my passport and I know for sure that older Vietnamese people who fled Vietnam during the war and now live in other countries would probably just slip like 10 or 20 dollars in the passport just to avoid any uncomfortable situation but I don't have any experience in dealing with corrupt people or government officials, so I just patiently waited for him to finish admiring my passport. I read somewhere that if you were one of those who caved in due to fear and gave money, these passport controllers would create a mark on your passport to signal to others that you basically hand out money. So once you travel back home or go through the passport control again, the officers will skim through your passport and see the mark and they will know to create an uncomfortable situation because they know that you would feel the need to pay up. I had very many weird encounters with these passport controllers. I don't know what they're called. Is that what they're called? I don't know. There was this one time when the officer flipped through my passport And by that time, I'd racked up a good amount of stamps from traveling to and fro Vietnam so much. So the officer flips through the passport and then asks the obvious question. Do you travel to Vietnam often? And then he asked me why. And then when I replied for business, he would follow up to ask if I have any family in Vietnam. And I said, no. Suddenly, I just kind of feared that they would track me down And find my relatives in Vietnam and make life hard for them. I swear, like my dad had prepped me for Vietnam as if I was traveling to Congo or something. So I just said that I have no family, no relatives or anything in Vietnam. And then he asked me what I was doing in Singapore and whether I could buy him an iPhone. And I was so baffled by the request. And I'm sure that I was... Only standing there for a few minutes, but it felt so much longer. While waiting for him to stamp my passport, I thought about how to respond. Like, okay, how was this going to work? Do I take his contact info by the phone first and then he'll pay me later? Or do I ask him to pay me up front and then I'll go by the phone? and then we'll exchange contact info? Or did he expect me to buy a phone just as a gift to him? He just left the question up in the air with no additional info about how this transaction was gonna go down. So my head was spinning. And then I think I said something along the lines of, well, I have an Android phone, so I don't know anything about iPhone. And I think because I didn't respond properly to his request, he just put a stamp on my passport and let me go. Another time, also by the customs slash passport control, the officer asked if he could pick me up at the airport. And I told him that I have a boyfriend. And then he said, but if you didn't have a boyfriend, would you let me pick you up at the airport? And I just didn't know how to respond to that like what do you mean pick me up at the airport we're already at the airport like why would you pick me up where are we going <laughs> and i just had so many weird encounters with the passport controllers i could probably have an entire episode just about that anyhow so that was the airport experience and for the first few times of traveling to vietnam i I would make sure that there would be a car from the hotel picking me up at the airport. You know when you enter the arrival hall at the airport and then there's always a bunch of people there in suits with a big poster or an iPad with names on it and it just looks like they're waiting to pick up some really important people? Well, I've always wanted someone to do that for me. And I got to experience that when I booked transportation through the hotel. There would be a guy in a black suit with an iPad with my name on it. And I just thought it was so cool. But I didn't do it just because it was cool, of course. I did it because that's what made me feel safe. However, after a few trips to Vietnam, I felt comfortable enough to just grab a cab for myself. Once I went outside the airport though, there would be a bunch of random men just like approaching me asking if I need a cab and I just learned to ignore them and just walk straight to the taxi stand and just wait for a cab from a legitimate company. I have to admit though that I am horrible when it comes to directions. I mean, I can pass down a street during daytime and if we were to drive through the exact same street at nighttime... I would probably think that I was somewhere completely different. So the good thing is that I know this about myself. So despite traveling to Vietnam a lot, I wasn't observant enough to remember all of the streets, but I didn't want the taxi drivers to take advantage of me. So sometimes while sitting in the back seat, I would just like throw out a random comment. Like, oh, why did you take this route to the hotel? And then the driver would say, oh, it's because this is the shortest way or something like that. But I would basically just pretend as if I knew about other routes to get to the hotel. But in reality, I was just bullshitting the driver. It was just my way to make them alert and not try to scam me. But I don't know if it worked or not. All of my trips to Vietnam is also where I got like 40% of my wardrobe, like what I wore in Singapore, I got it from Vietnam. I had bought this really nice wrap dress in Singapore from BCBG Max Astria for $200 and I really liked the fit so I thought I want the same dress in all kinds of colors. So when I was in Vietnam, I asked someone at the hotel reception for a tailor and they introduced me to one. And he'd come to the hotel room, I showed him the dress, he made measurements, and then basically said that if I wanted, I could come with him to the market and I could choose the fabric, and then he'd copy the dress. So after client meetings, I met up with a tailor at the hotel and then I'd sit on his moped as he drove to the fabric market and that was what I would do every other time I was in Vietnam or whenever I had the time. So as a result, I now have close to like 20 wrap dresses in all kinds of colors and I'd often get compliments on how I looked so well put together because I wore these Diane von Furstenberg inspired wrap dresses, which I think is such a sophisticated look. And I would reply, I literally just grabbed something out of my closet because it was the truth. I had filled my closet with wrap dresses. So that kind of became my uniform or my work attire, if you will. There's a lot more to say about my work experience in Singapore, but I will save it for next time. If you want to see some pictures from this episode, then check out my Instagram profile. It's podcast underscore to my daughter. Each episode, I'll post a few pictures that are related to each episode. So check it out if you will. And it's a great opportunity for you to give feedback, comments, and just whatever you feel like. Please share. Also, remember to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done that. As always, thanks Emil for listening and wherever you are in the world, I hope you're staying safe.